We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, if you want to turn there. We're continuing our God Behaving Badly question mark series and examining some of the criticisms of God that the world has against Christianity, against God, and against the faith that we have. And over the last several weeks, I've been reading a lot of blog posts, I've been reading editorials and newspapers and online about people, particularly on what we would call the liberal side, and giving an opinion about how they see God, particularly in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision to allow for gay nuptials. I can't really call it gay marriage because marriage is a union between a man and a woman for life as stated by Jesus and God in the Bible. So they've kind of come out and started attacking God and saying, you know, the, your God is this harsh dictator and this God is more interested in preserving the cultural norm that existed in the Bronze Age for crying out loud instead of assuring the happiness of people today. That's what your God is all about. And this, this thought has been repeated over and over and over again in the, in, the, uh, in the media that's out there. And a lot of the times, you know, when we're reading our Bibles and we read this stuff online and then we go and, and open our Bibles and read it, these thoughts echo in the back of our mind. And then we read stuff in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy 27:26 that says, Cursed is he, who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And you're like, oh, wow, God is, is actually kind of concerned about this law, isn't he? And you start to read through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and, and you start reading about all these laws in the, in the Bible, and you look at them and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to possibly obey all this stuff? And, and what does it all mean? And all these kind of things. And, and you're thinking, I don't want to be cursed. I mean, who wants to be cursed? I mean, how do we please God? And then we look at the, at the longest chapter in the Bible. You know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? It's a psalm, 119. And how does that start out? It says, blessed are the undefiled in their way who walk in the law of the Lord. And we're like, oh my goodness, blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with his whole heart. And we look at this and we're like, man, it must be all about obedience. It must be all about following these laws and everything. And if we were to read only the Old Testament, we're going to come to the same conclusion that many in the secular world have, that strict adherence and obedience is required to be saved or even pleasing in God's sight. We come to that same conclusion sometimes in our own heart. And I kind of find it ironic and, and a little bit, I guess, grimly amusing that non-Christians can pick a couple verses out of the Old Testament and criticize Christianity about obedience to the law of God. I find it kind of amusing because the same thing they criticize us for, they praise about Islam. And they're even stricter. If you, if you read the Quran, they're even stricter about obedience. A lot of the stuff in the Quran comes with a death penalty if you don't do it. So I find that kind of amusing that they, they, they criticize Christianity but proclaim Islam for doing the same thing. But how should a Christian react to these kind of arguments that come against you? Because even within the church, there has always been this tension and ongoing argument that's existed really for 2,000 years about what is required to be pleasing to God. Is it obedience to the law 
Or is it the freedom and grace that we have through Jesus Christ? And you see it kind of reflected up there on the screen where you have almost a tug of war that occurs in the church and it also occurs in our own lives and as we try to live pleasing to the Lord. And in the early church, that argument was fought very ferociously, particularly in the Galatian church that we're going to read this morning. And much like today, within the Galatian church, they had two factions. They had Hebrews, or legalists, who believed that you had to obey the Mosaic ceremonial and their moral law that you see in the first five books of the Bible, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy, or they are the Greeks, who are more the, peop, the grace people, the hyper-grace people, who grew up with this idea of strict obedience to various idols and, as, and that they worshipped as a god within their culture. But suddenly, they came to Christ and got set free from all that. So they knew the freedom that was found in Christ. So what happened is that while the Hebrews lead toward legalism and strict obedience, the Greeks lead more toward lascivious and free grace and free love and we can live however we want and still be pleasing to God. So you had these two polar opposites within Christianity at the time. So we're going to jump right in the middle of this internal church fight and see what the scripture has to say about this. Now Paul is kind of refereeing this fight via letter. If it was today, he would have probably sent an email to them and said, look, you guys need to get this straight. I mean, he's kind of like an NFL official, if you think about it. He's sitting over here, the Hebrews are saying, you must be circumcised, or, or you can't be a Christian, or you must avoid certain kind of meat, or you can't be a Christian. And, and the Greeks are over here going, look, look, you know, I followed all those idols, and all that stuff turned out to be false. I now have freedom in Christ. I don't have to worry about any of that. Jesus died for me. I'm okay. Everything's good. You know, quit throwing all these kind of rules upon me. And Paul's kind of standing right in the middle, and he pulls a flag out of his pocket, and he goes, penalty, legalism. Penalty, lasciviousness. He penalizes both sides and then goes and teaches them exactly what this tension is between law and grace. And that's where we're going to pick it up in 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we ask, Lord, that this tension between law and grace in our lives will be resolved this morning. That is the purpose of what we are looking at in your word this morning, is to resolve where obedience ends and grace begins and where grace ends and obedience begins. Help us to settle that in our own minds this morning because we want to live lives that are worthy of the cross of Christ. So we can make the largest impact on this world that we possibly can. Father God, we thank you. 
We ask, Father, that you make our hearts attentive to your word and our spirits willing to change this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So that is the big question. How do we as Christians treat the law of God as seen in the Old Testament? And how does the Old Testament law affect us today? Well, let's see what the purpose of the law is. Now, in the Old Testament, there were two different kinds of laws that we see, particularly in the first five books of the Bible. Within those first five books, there are 613 different laws. I don't know if you knew that, but 613 laws that the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders had to memorize and follow in order to be pleasing to God under that um, government that God gave them at the time. And those laws are broken down into ceremonial laws that had to do with temple worship, cultural laws that spoke to their immediate world, and moral laws which reflect the character of God. Let's look at uh, one of the cultural laws. An example of a cultural law would be a prohibition against wearing clothing of mixed thread. In other words, they could not wear wool and cotton, or a garment of wool and cotton at the same time. How many people here right now are guilty of breaking this law as we sit here? Polyester, right. I have probably polyester, nylon, cotton, and rubber in my shoes. I mean, is we're all guilty of breaking this law right now, right? But what we have to understand is that this was a cultural situation that they were addressing with this law. Now, what happened back then is that people would, um, would mix threads and make things to look really, really good. They couldn't just take wool or they couldn't just take cotton and make a garment to look really fancy and all this kind of thing. They had to make it out of several different things. But that's not what God called the Levitical priesthood to do. When he, they made one garment, they would make it out of one fabric. Because God wasn't so interested in looking great, or the priest looking great. He was interested in purity of worship. However, the idolatrous people at the, of the time would make these garments that were just gaudily fancy. I mean, they, they would just be probably something you'd see on your average runway of a fashion show nowadays. I mean, they would just be just way out there. And they would be made of, of all these different kinds of cloths, all these different kinds of thread and everything. And they would just be very brittle because of that. And they would tear easily and they would be ruined easily. And God didn't want his high priests associated with that kind of stuff. That is why, by the way, that in the Bible it says that the priest should never tear the garment that he is wearing in grief. You should never, ever tear that. One, it would be very difficult because it was very finely made. And two, it was to reflect the holiness of God upon him. Whereas these um, other idol-worshipping people would just tear this stuff away and it would just rip like, like tissue paper because it was so um, haphazardly made. Now there's a ceremonial law. For example, swine and lobster. Swine and lobster were heavily used in pagan worship, or they were worshipped themselves. These were foods that were forbidden by Mosaic law. That, and in the Bronze Age, and even in today's age, these are scavenging animals. These are animals that are bottom feeders. I mean, you could throw anything at a pig, and a pig's going to eat it, right? Lobsters are the same way. They clean the ocean floor, and they, they scurry along, and they taste good, 
but they are bottom feeders, and if you don't prepare them exactly correctly, you can become very ill. The same thing with swine. So God didn't want his people associated with eating these kind of animals that were these kind of, kind of refuse and bottom, bottom feeding kind of animals. The uh, purity of the temple worship was key in understanding the ceremonial, the other ceremonial laws is that God wanted to keep this totally separate from what was going on in the culture and have his worship be pure and undefiled by all that junk going, out, going on out there and everything. And all these kind of laws found their fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. That is why they're not uh, placed on us here in the church today. Now, we looked at the ceremony, we looked at the cultural, and now let's look at the moral. The moral law is simply summarized in the Ten Commandments. If you look at Commandment 1 through 4, Commandment 1 through 4 deals with our vertical relationship with God. It deals how we are to approach God, it deals with how we are to worship Him, and our other six laws deal with our horizontal relationship with each other but they are also to be reflective of God's character. The moral law does exactly that. It reflects the holiness of God. It reflects the perfection of God. It reflects the character of God that we are to strive toward. That is the purpose of the law. It's to reveal his character, for us to emulate and imitate, and it's to point us to his moral perfection by showing us the truth about ourselves. We know that we can never, not even the Ten Commandments, for crying out loud, we couldn't even follow one commandment of God in the Garden of Eden, much less the ten that he gave us. We know that we can't do it by ourselves. We know that we have a problem obeying just even the, the smallest thing in the Word of God. And what, it show, what this shows us is that how wicked our hearts are, how much damage was done to us spiritually at the fall of man. Jeremiah lamented about this when he said that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Some versions of the Bible say it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah understood this about himself and he understood it about his culture and he understood it about everybody around him is that our heart is, is just broken. It's beyond cure. And what everyone should know right now in our own lives and even watching the world is that man cannot perfectly obey the law. No human apart from Jesus ever lived their lives in perfect obedience to the moral law. And since we are under the moral law and we cannot follow it, we're under judgment already. That is the natural state of man. Man is born under judgment. That's a pretty heavy thing to think about. And that's the first purpose of the law, to show that we're hopeless, we're helpless. We are desperately needing the grace and mercy of God when we stand before him. Because in order for God to be totally good, and in order for him to be morally perfect, he must also be just. He must also punish sin. What would we say of a judge that gets a murderer before him and the murderer said, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it won't happen again. Well, maybe till tomorrow. I got one more person on my list here. If the judge just let him go on that, what would we think about that judge? Would we say he is a just judge? 
No. We would say that is an unjust judge and he has no moral character. Well, God is the same way. He has to punish sin because no sin can exist in heaven. Therefore, we're doomed if we try to trust in ourselves to earn our own way there by obeying the law. The second purpose of the law is to point us to and drive us to something outside of ourselves and cry for mercy. And that leads us to what God wanted originally for us, and that is the restoration of faith. Let's look briefly at the crux of the matter by looking at what caused the fall of man. God sets Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gives them two, well, three rules, really. Two positive, one negative, if you want to look at it that way. He said, I want you to be fruitful. What does that mean? I want you to enjoy making a lot of kids. That's what he said. What else did he say? Eat of everything in the garden. Eat as much as you want. That sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it? Especially as a guy. I'm all bored with God's plan here. I get to multiply and I get to eat whatever I want. Woohoo! I'm good with God. I love God. That's, that's essentially what he said in the garden. He just gave him one prohibition. Don't touch, go near, or eat of the fruit of the um, knowledge of good and evil. Don't, don't go near that tree. You don't want that knowledge. You're not made to exist to become that free moral agent. That's not how God, I created you. Stay away from it. Then a serpent enters in the garden. Adam fails to protect Eve from him. And asks Eve, did God really say? It's one question in two parts with what he was doing there. Because this is the starting point of every sin and every evil in this world. The first part of this question did God say that? And I mean, is that what he really meant? That's the, first question. That's the first part of that question. The second part of that question posed by Satan, is God good for holding back from you this fruit here, which is obviously good to eat? It looks wonderful. I mean, is he a good God because he's going to withhold something that is just looking great, promises to give you pleasure, promises to fulfill you in a way that obviously he's keeping from you, so maybe you should just try it and see what happens. All sin starts and ends with questioning God's holiness and his character to justify us fulfilling our sinful desires. When we question this to justify our rebellion, we call God a liar and we show a complete lack of faith in him because God is his word. He is his word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When you question that, you question everything about him. You question his integrity, you question his character, he question, you question his holiness, and God cannot tolerate that. Adam set humanity, or Abram, excuse me, further in the Bible. Abram set humanity back on track with what 
with that which is most important to God. Abraham makes a promise to God. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants more numerable than the stars in the sky. Makes him this promise. And then Abram waits. And he waits. For decades he waits. Until one night he's standing out before God and he's looking up at the sky and he's saying, you know, God, I'm 90 years old and I ain't have a son yet. I don't know if you know or understand or forgotten how human anatomy works, but Sarah's got, Sarah's, you know, 80 and, you know, she stopped making babies or having the potential to make babies a long time ago. And you're promising me a son and I'm just going to have to give everything I own to my servant and, and all these kind of things. And God repeats his promise to Abram. He said, look up at the sky. Count the stars if you can, because that's what your descendants, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Descendants are innumerable. And then, it has, and then the Bible says something very specific when it says Abram, who later becomes Abraham, Abram believed God. And he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. Believing is the very definition of faith. And he credited it to him as righteousness, which is a right standing with God. It means you are standing before him completely clean and, and holy. And this is the complete opposite of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Where Adam doubted and fell, Abram believed and set up a foundation for all believers. Because you know what faith is? It's the currency of heaven. It really is. You can't do anything by faith. The Bible says that faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is simply believing that God's word is true. It takes faith to believe that this Bible is true. It takes faith. We have, we have all kinds of other evidences, and I've shared the, a lot of the other evidences with you in the past, that the Bible is true and that God has maintained his word throughout history. But you still have to come to it with, with some faith and saying, yes, that all that is true. I believe that what this book says is true. And it takes faith to see the God of the Bible as almighty, as holy, as just, and as loving. It takes faith to see who we really are on the inside. It takes faith to accept his verdict over sin. That the soul that sins will die. And the death that he is talking about is eternal torment in hell. It ex we have to have faith to accept that we cannot save ourselves. We have to have faith that we cannot measure up. We have to have faith that we are weak within ourselves and we desperately need help from something that is outside of us. And that's the whole purpose of the law, is to show our helplessness and to point us to that one thing outside of ourselves, and his name is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world may be saved through him. The love that God had for us, he gave us the way out. The way from having to be totally obedient to the law, to live under this constant fear and constant stress of having to measure up to God. He said, enough of that. Go to Jesus. And it restores in humanity what he originally intended for us. And that is the fulfillment of faith. Fulfillment of faith seen in love. 
we need to understand that law gives us a fence line. Now, most of us here in the Cooley region of the country, we are used to living amongst bluffs. We're using, used to walking through the woods and suddenly coming up and go, whoa, hey, 50, 60, 100 foot drop right there. Maybe I shouldn't go any farther than that. You see, we all live on that kind of a plane spiritually. We are surrounded by giant um, chasms and our father has put, has, being a loving father of essentially spiritual toddlers that we all are, he has set up a fence around this and he's called that fence law. Because he knows that if we go over the top of this fence and fall, we're going to spiritually die. So he sets this fence up to show us that you can't go that far or you go outside of my will. You can't go that far or you go outside of my holiness. You can't go over there or you go outside of my will for your life. And you can't go back there because even though it looks good, even though it sounds good, even though it might even feel good, if you've done it in the past, it only leads you to destruction. So he protects us by this fence line from these cliffs. And God is a good and loving parent. Remember what he said to Adam and Eve? He said, don't even, you know... Eve told him, he says, he doesn't even want us to look at that thing. And, and, you know, the devil casts that doubt in our mind, and God doesn't want us to go anywhere near those fences. And you know what the law also does? Not only does it protect us, but it reveals to us what's in our hearts. It reveals our heart when we learn to pass that fence line. Because in our sinful nature that hasn't come under the cross yet, we yearn sometimes to run past that fence, don't we? We want to pass that fence. You know, most Christians spend their whole lives, like if this was a fence, they spend their whole lives going, yeah, I'm still not over the fence. You know, like that, instead of being like way back here, I don't even want to look at that fence. That's how we spend most of our lives, if we're really honest with each other. And it's that same argument from time in the past that's coming back and being rekindled in our hearts did God really say, is God holding out on something that can bring me pleasure or fulfillment? And that inner conflict, spiritual conflict happens. Will I believe the lie? Some people would say, well, if the law is a fence and it's just so easily breached, I mean, for crying out loud, it's not even that high. It's like right here, I can step right over it. I can jump down. I can do whatever I want. Why does God make, just make a better fence? I mean, he's putting a bunch of kids out here with a fence that's only a few inches high, and he's, he's not a very good father if he does that. Why does he need build a better fence? Two words. Free will. He has to give us free will. You know, I can take this tablet, this tablet that we use for our soundboard right here. I can take this tablet and I can program it to say, John, I love you, until it runs out of batteries. I can say, John, I love you. John, I love you. John, I love you. John, you're a great pastor. John, you're a great pastor. John, you're the best public speaker ever. John, you're the best public speaker ever. It can say all these kind of things, whether it's true or not. It can say all these kind of things over and over and over again. But what does that really mean to me? It's something I programmed a machine to do for me. Wouldn't that become kind of a really annoying after a while? Wouldn't it become a clanging gong or a sounding cymbal? It would just be something that's really, really annoying after a while? Because it's just, it's, it doesn't have a choice to do it. I told it to do it. And it's going to obey what I told it to do it. 
And God desires, though, worship that is freely given to him. Freely. I mean, how would your spouse feel or your significant other or girlfriend or whatever you might have in your life right now? What would they think if you just walked around and say, I love you, dear. I love you, dear. I love you, dear. I mean, they're, they're not going to appreciate that at all. The fence is at the height it is because God wants us to choose to love him. And for that to happen, God has to change the heart that drives our free will. As Jeremiah said, the heart of man is desperately wicked, desperately sick. So God has to change that heart, and this can only happen through a new birth. The old man needs to die. It needs to get nailed to a cross by accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus emphasizes this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him asking questions and everything, and Jesus just cut him off and said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, being this philosopher, theologian kind of guy, goes, how am I going to enter into my mom's womb? Crying out loud, I'm in my 30s. I mean, that's, that's impossible. What are you talking about? Jesus reemphasizes it. He doubles down on him again. He makes this statement, you must be born again, and then it goes and explains it. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And listen very specifically here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And what did Jeremiah say about the fleshly heart? Desperately wicked. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is what God wants to restore in every person. Is this heart that yearns to come at, run after him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength through him coming and living within you. So the question, is God legalistic or is he gracious? Gracious. But he sets up the law as our fence. But he, he gives us grace to obey it. Not only to obey it, but just to emulate it, to make it part of ourselves. Not just to have a checklist that we go through to make sure that we're okay with him, but something that forms our own individual character so that the fence line isn't even a consideration for it. We're going to get as far away from it as we can. You know, under the old law, under the Old Testament, the whole duty of man is summed up in Ecclesiastes 12 when he says, when Solomon says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Solomon had just spent chapters of the Bible going after different things, riches, women, drink, all kinds of stuff going after him. So this has to fulfill me. No, that didn't work. This has to fulfill me. No, that, that just gave me a hangover. This has to fulfill me. No, that just gave me a bunch of kids. This, nothing is fulfilling me. And finally he came to the understanding that this is the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But under the New Testament, under grace, God's graciousness points humanity to the love and mercy of God shown through Christ Jesus. Amen. Musicians, if you would come back up, please. For those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, this 
is the end of the matter. And it's found in Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. In other words, it's not whether you obey the law. The law is a starting point, but it is not the finish line by any means. Salvation is not by works, and it's not by obedience, but faith working itself through love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That is the heart of God for each and every one of you, is to have that heart passion and cry through the new birth that he gives you at salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I ask, Father, that those who are under the bondage of the law, those who may be thinking right now that they are somehow not measuring up to where you want them to be, and somehow they have to save themselves through harder efforts, somehow they have to clean themselves up before they come to you more fully. I speak against that in the name of Jesus. I ask that that fall away from their minds. And I ask, Father, that you help them right now to experience the grace of God that was bought for on a bloody cross, mounted to Calvary's hill. Lord God, I ask, Father, that your people experience the freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. That the law not be a burden to them, it not be something that fills them with fear, but it is something, Father, that they can look at and say, I want to be that. I want to be a man of character. I want to be a woman that shows love to people. I want to be a person that exhibits the very nature of God to this community. So, Father God, as we enter into this time of worship and prayer at the end of service, I ask, Lord, that you change hearts in this congregation right now. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts, and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. If you're interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org, or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them 
be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.